The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Sometimes something happens in the culture that needs a response from the pulpit. Our, normally, our, our normal uh, strategy here at Capitol is just to preach sequentially through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, going through entire books so that way we can learn the Scriptures. But sometimes something happens where you need to just stop and just address things from a biblical standpoint, from a from a godly standpoint. And of course, this week, what I'm talking about is this leaked majority opinion of Justice Samuel Alito, which uh, will, Lord willing, overturn Roe v. Wade. And this past week, Chief Justice Roberts confirmed the legitimacy of it and what I think is just incredibly um, positive. They all said, we're not wavering on this. Nothing's going to change. We're, we're sticking to our guns, and, and all the justices have said that, that the leak isn't going to affect anything. So what that means is that, Lord willing, Roe v. Wade will be overturned. And in God's providence, this happened during the week before Mother's Day. And you, you know the statistics. I think you've, you've heard them all week on the news. But since Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, over 60 million babies have been aborted. That's, on average, over 2,000 every single day. Just to give you a framework for how many people that is, the state of Texas's population is 29 million so double Texas, and you're looking at the amount of population that is missing right now in America. It was 70 million people that died in World War II. So we're looking at literally uh, a holocaust in our own country of nearly as many people throughout the entire world that died in the Second World War. R.C. Sproul said before he died, I believe we are in the midst of a new and more evil holocaust, which sees the destruction of 1.5 million unborn babies every year in the United States alone. Justice Alito's majority opinion is 98 pages. It is extremely well argued, and basically what he says is, is that nowhere in the Constitution can you find the ground for abortion. When Roe, when Roe v. Wade was ruled in 1973, it was ruled under basically the, the grounds of the 14th Amendment, which says that there must be a long-standing tradition of something in American life for, for, it, to be, um, for it to be a right. And what, if you read Alito's argument, what he points out is actually the opposite is the case. Throughout the 19th century and the 20th century, there were laws everywhere against abortion. 
even some laws saying that it was homicide. So it's the actual opposite uh, is, is the case. He points out that the first legal uh, argument that appeared in a journal happened just a few years before Roe was passed in 1973. Let me give you a quote from his argument. He said, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. That's an understatement. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's representatives. So basically what he's saying is, is, is they're going to knock down Roe v. Wade, but now it's going to be a state issue. And every state is going to need to decide how they treat this issue. And you know where North Carolina stands. It's legal here. So we have a lot of work and, and advocacy to do. But this is a, a huge event in the life of our nation. After the leak, we knew, and this is why, why the, whole, the, the whole point of the leak, right? Whoever, whoever did this, this is why they were motivated. They knew that there would be a response, and we knew that the response would be dark. This is a spiritual matter, and it would be a, a response spurred on by the forces of darkness. I remember when I was probably eight, nine years old, down in Dallas, our church, Schofield Memorial Church, there was a, a, a pro-life um, basically, event, and all the churches throughout the Metroplex went out on various street, streets holding up signs. And I remember our family and a bunch of other families from our church were holding up signs on Royal Lane right next to uh, White Rock Lake Park, and we were, we were walking along the street, and I'll never forget the hand signals that I learned for the first time <laughs> and the words that I learned for the first time. I learned that this was a, an issue that was opposed by the forces of darkness. And that's what we saw all week, right? Let me just give you several quotes. Many threatened revolution. This is Maria Shriver. She said, so you want a revolution? Well, we have one right here, right now. I saw a, a thought leader. Her name is Brittany Packnelt. And in her bio on Twitter, it says, Saved by Grace. Now, listen to what she says. The draft decision is evil. The long game to dismantle any rights that are not, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, end quote, is white supremacist patriarchy that will never stop at abortion. This moment will either involve despair or revolution. The choice is ours. And this has been the inflamed rhetoric of so many that are advancing abortion. Pro-abortion Democratic leaders, their response was predictable. Senator Chuck Schumer said that if you are pro-life, you are, quote, on the wrong side of history and on the wrong side of progress. I don't know if you saw Senator Elizabeth Warren outside of the Supreme Court literally yelling and screaming. This is what, this is what she screamed. I, I took this from a video. She said, I am angry 
because an extremist Supreme Court thinks they can impose their extremist views on all the women of this country, and they are wrong. I have seen the world where abortion is illegal. We're not going back, not now, not ever. So you need to understand that for many in Washington, this issue is the linchpin issue, the hill that they are going to die on. And it should be the hill that we are willing to die on as well. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain why in a second. But uh, l- let me just give you a little bit more flavor on the response to this. On Wednesday, I posted on, on Instagram, this is just, this is my, my thinking. I said, the abolition of abortion is a biblical mandate. To stand for Roe in any capacity is to stand against God. That's how ethically clear this issue is. It is good versus evil. Amen. Now, that, that post had, uh, it might be close to 300 comments by now, almost all of them negative and attacking. And I just wanted to read a few of these to you. Why does everyone need to be punished for your outdated sky daddy nonsense. Here's another one. You are a monster. Here's another one. You going to raise your kids with this type of Christian hate? God isn't real, chief. I don't know why they added the chief part. Your religion is evil. I mean, do you hear this? Your religion is evil. And then here's my personal favorite. Quote, you are the white Taliban, end quote. <laughs> and, and these are the ones that I can repeat in church. Most of these are, are so inflamed and, um, you know, we, we, we can't even mention them. But I think most alarming was one of the comments that I saw from our president, President Joe Biden. And, and he said this. He said, the right to abortion, the right to abortion is fundamental because we are children of God. He invoked the name of God as a right to abortion. And I find that to be reprehensible to the highest degree and akin to blasphemy. To say that God would condone the taking of life in the womb, which is supposed to be the safest place for a baby to grow, is to confuse God with the devil. This is, this is satanic. And you're calling it sanctioned by God? And that really got me thinking. It begs the question, what does God think about abortion? And there's an easy answer to that. God hates abortion. God hates abortion. And he hates it with a holy passion. Now, I ask you to turn to Proverbs chapter 6. And, and we're going to be in a number of different scriptures today, so I just want you to just have your Bibles there and be ready to flip. We're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures. But look what the, 
what, look what Solomon says in verse 16. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. The first, haughty eyes. The second, a lying tongue. And look what the third is, hands that shed innocent blood. What could fit the definition of shedding innocent blood more than abortion? You're not going to find any other practice that better fits the definition of shedding innocent blood more than the practice of abortion. Because who is more innocent than an unborn child? I mean, yes, we're all under original sin, but an unborn child hasn't done any action. They are the most innocent person that you can find right now on planet Earth. You know, even newborn babies, man, you, you, you know, they, they can they can exercise, start exercising their will pretty quickly. But an but a unborn child in the womb, you won't find anybody more innocent. And so, it's very clear from Scripture what God thinks about abortion. But I want to take it a step further, and I want to show you five more reasons why God hates abortion. And the first is, is that God is the author of human life. God is the author of human life. Just listen to what Moses writes in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Moses asserts that it's God who is the creator of mankind. We didn't originate from a lightning strike to primordial goo billions and trillions of years ago. We originated in a garden called Eden by the hand and breath of God. Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So human life is a gift from God. And what God says is, is that you and, and I do not have the prerogative to take it outside of his will. That's why the fifth commandment is, you shall not murder. And obviously, we can talk about just war theory, which is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 20, and the taking of life in war, and capital punishment, which is also sanctioned, sanctioned by God in Scripture. But God takes murder very seriously. You remember Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. This is the first murder in the Bible, and God pronounces a curse on Cain. Genesis 4.10, God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So, God pronounces a curse on Cain. And then if you read further, he also pronounces a curse on anybody that would kill Cain. God hates murder. Well, you might ask, well, what about a baby? You're, that's talking about somebody that's already been born. What does God think about the taking of the life of a child in the womb? And to see this, I want you to turn to the left to Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 22. 
Moses lays out these contingencies of possibilities of what will happen and then the laws that will be enacted when these things happen, or the the punishments, I should say. And he gives this scenario. This scenario is from God. He says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Now look at verse 23. But if there is harm, if there is harm, and scholars, commentators point to that here he means harm to either the mother or the child. It's both. But if there is harm to either of them, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And here, he's talking about an accident, right? Two, two guys are wrestling, and one of them accidentally bumps a woman, and if she or the child that is miscarried, if, if that happens, if there's harm, then that person will have to recompense the wrong. There will be retribution. So if that is what God thinks what should happen with an accident to a child in the womb, how much more should there be punishment involved for committing voluntary manslaughter, murder, removing the child from a womb on purpose, for the purpose of ending life? God is the author of life, and only God gets to set the parameters for when life can be taken. That's the first reason. God is the author of human life. The second is that God created mankind with honor. I want you to turn to Psalm 8, to Psalm 8. God created mankind with honor. The Psalms are in the middle of the Bible, as, as we read earlier, Psalm 7. Now we're going to look at Psalm 8, and this is David writing. And David is outside of his house in Jerusalem, and if you look at verse 3 of Psalm 8, he's obviously outside, gazing up at the stars, and he asks this question. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's an important question to think about. What is the value of mankind? You look at the universe and all the, the, the galaxies, all the trillions of stars, and you ask the question, what is our significance here? These little what would be ants on this piece of dust spiraling around in the universe? What's, what's the point? How can God even think about man? How can God be mindful of man? That word mindful means to be thoughtful about, to even acknowledge. How can God even acknowledge us? And the answer is in verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, that's the angels, 
And then he says, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. That man and woman is given by God a distinct glory and honor. Our worth is not an intrinsic worth in the sense that we uh, are inherently valuable. Our value is in the fact that God created us and placed a crown of honor and glory upon each and every person. Honor means heaviness, weightiness, as we've been discussing on Sunday nights, and glory is the radiance of attributes. And you think about what attributes do we radiate? Well, we are supposed to radiate the attributes of God because God created us as image bearers. Let me read to you Genesis one twenty six. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So as the image bearers of God, God created man and woman to rule over the earth and to rule over the animals. This idea of image is a projection of dominion and rule. So if, if you want to project your rule in a kingdom, what a king would do in the ancient world is he would build a statue of himself, and he would place that in the different villages. And all the citizens of that village, when they're wondering, oh, who's in charge here? You see the, you see the statue, and the statue represents the rule of the person who's in charge. And that's what God does with mankind on the earth, is he puts man on the earth to represent his rule. And that's why man is made distinct from the animals. Animals, as much as you love your your little dog or your cat, they don't have a soul. Do you remember? It's it's the man that God breathes in the the ruach, the the breath of life. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And what this means is that you and I, everyone, people, have have a higher value, a glory and honor above the animals, contrary to what PETA might be telling you. You are worth far more than the gorilla at the zoo. Uh, Look at verse 6 of Psalm 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Deep down, I think everybody in our society knows this. If you see a squirrel steal an acorn from another squirrel, you laugh about it. If you see somebody steal somebody else's lunch, it's a more serious issue, right? If, 
if your dog gets diseased and sick, what do you do? You, you take them to the vet, and the vet puts the dog down. What happens if grandpa gets sick? You don't take him to the doctor to put him down. You provide care, right? Anybody go to Chick-fil-A yesterday to get your fix before Sunday? How much chicken and steak do you eat? You, you eat, you eat, we eat animals all the time, right? You don't eat people. You shouldn't. I read a story, uh, it's called Into the Heart of the Sea. I don't know if any of y'all have read that. It's about a group of whalers. And this story inspired Moby Dick, the, the novel that Herman Melville wrote. And basically these whalers left Massachusetts, went all the way around the, the Horn of South America, and then into the Pacific where they heard there was this huge, uh, basically, feeding ground and mating ground of, of sperm whales, and they got all the way out into the middle of the Pacific. And a white albino sperm whale destroyed their boat, rammed into their boat, and their boat sank in the middle of the Pacific. And all they had is their little rowboats that they were out hunting the wells in. And they started rowing back from the, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to try and get back to the coast of South America. And on the way, guys started to die. And in the story, the survivors ate the dead. But when they got back, they never spoke about it. Obviously, somebody did because the story got out and the book was written. But they were ashamed. They were ashamed of what they did. Why were they ashamed? Because you don't eat people. Man has a distinct honor and glory about him. And that honor is given by God. Are you ready for your Mother's Day brunch now? But th this is what is being attacked with abortion. Our value is in the fact that God has crowned us with this honor, and abortion rejects this reality. It says that man is nothing but an animal, that that child in the womb is no different from uh, a monkey in his mother's womb. It's merely a clump of developing cells and that there's no connection between that child and God. And so essentially what modern man has done through abortion has, is that we have voluntarily cut ourselves off from God. And we have denied the fact that man has a distinct honor as God's image bearers on the earth. So that's the second reason why God hates abortion. First, God is the author of human life. Second, God created mankind with honor. Third, God providentially creates in the womb. God providentially creates in the womb. I want you to turn to the right again to Psalm 139. beginning in verse 13. Again, this is David. 
He says, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So God is involved in the, the development of the child in the mother's womb. And notice who David praises. He doesn't praise his parents or, or the forces of biology. He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, my, my body was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, describing his, his mother's womb. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so what he's saying is, is that God saw him as a person, that God saw that his days were fixed, that God himself was involved in forming his sinews, bones, tendons, and flesh together. God is involved in the very intricate details of life in the womb. Therefore, the personhood of this child is God's business. And this framework is how everyone throughout Scripture understood life in the womb. So let me give you a couple examples. If you turn to the right again to the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, Listen how Isaiah describes himself beginning in verse 1. He says, and he's talking to his hearers, his listeners. He says, I want you to understand who I am. I want you to understand this about me. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. In other words, God called me to this prophetic ministry in the womb and gave me my name in the womb. He made my mouth, God made his mouth, like a sharp sword. In other words, to speak the word of God. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He's saying, you need to understand that God commissioned me even when I was in the womb, that God formed me and God gave me this message to speak to you. One other example, this one in the New Testament, turn again to the right all the way to the Gospels, to Luke chapter 1, verse 39. This is the story of when Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, do you remember she's pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ? Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Luke records, Luke 1.39, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, listen to this, this is so remarkable, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And listen to what Elizabeth says. She exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So the baby in Elizabeth, John the Baptist. Now, obviously, John the Baptist was filled by the Holy Spirit, so he's a unique baby, but he's still a baby. He's still a person. And this baby exercises some degree of emotion at the sound of Mary's voice. So, very remarkable. The writers throughout Scripture are saying that personhood begins in the womb. And now, just scientifically, it's almost impossible to deny that, right? You go and you get the high-def sonograms. You hear a, a heartbeat at two weeks. It's, this, isn't, this isn't a matter of disputed science. It's not a debate when life begins. We all know when life begins now. But the Bible asserts that the child in the womb is a person, and not only a person, but a person that God forms, that God names, that God calls, and even, in the case of John the Baptist, to whom God gives emotion. So that's the third reason, is that God providentially creates life in the womb. There's a fourth and if you know anything about the abortion industry, this one will be obvious to you. And it's this, God hates the oppression of the poor. God hates the oppression of the poor. We could look at so many verses that relate to this. Let me just read you a couple. This is Isaiah 10, verse 1, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Psalm 12, 5 says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. It's no secret that the abortion industry and Planned Parenthood in particular have targeted the poor of society. Why do they do that? Because that's what they were designed to do. If you know the history of Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger, its uh, founder, she essentially left her husband, engaged in a life of adultery, and really began to advance a sexual revolution in New York, and she began publishing pornographic materials for which she was charged with crimes, and to escape arrest, she fled to England, and while in England, she was influenced by an idea called eugenics. And eugenics is the idea that you can create a super race by controlling reproduction. And how they do that is you don't allow the poor, you don't allow the handicapped, and in their minds, this it was incredibly racist, you don't allow inferior races to reproduce. So when Margaret Sanger came back to America, the first abortion clinic that Sanger opened in New York 
was in an area of newly migrated Slavs, Latinos, Italians, and Jews, which according to Sanger were, quote, all dysgenic and diseased races, end quote. Sanger then went on to target the black community as well. And the way she did this is by convincing black leaders that this was what was best for their communities. I'm sure you've heard pro-life leader and advocate Star Parker. This is what she says, quote, Then and now, Sanger's organization has used trusted leaders to convince the black community that abortion as a form of birth control is not only acceptable but also beneficial to African-American culture, end quote. And this has had absolutely devastating effects on these communities. You saw this week, this is so surprising, leaders that, that different ethnicities look to are, are calling abortion a right. You're, you're seeing this this week, this deception, this lie that Satan has used for now a hundred years, that this is an important right for your ethnic group. I, I, I heard one uh, Latina woman in Texas saying this this past week, that, this is, that, that abortion is a fundamental right for the Latino population in Texas. The statistics on the abortions with people of color in America are absolutely heartbreaking. Let me just give you one. In Mississippi last year, People of color made up, that's Latinos, African Americans, they made up 44% of the population in Mississippi, but they accounted for 81% of the abortions. So, what you need to understand is from the very beginning, abortion has been motivated by racist, hateful ideas that stem from the pit of hell that some people are inferior to others based on their nationality, based on their ableism or handicaps, or based on their ethnicity, or based on their IQ. I mean, you can just, you can just trace this. This is historic fact. And God hates the oppression of the poor. And this is the gravest injustice that has ever been committed in our country. Make no mistake about it. This is the worst injustice in the history of America, is the advance of abortion. That's the, the fourth reason. The fifth and the final one is that God hates idolatry. God hates idolatry. God demands that he be worshiped, and he alone should be worshiped. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And abortion, as you know, is downstream from our culture's worship of the God of sensuality, the God of hookups, the God of self. I saw in an article this week from a woman, she said, quote, 
in case you're a man who doesn't care about Roe v. Wade, just know that if abortion gets banned, hookup culture will be absolutely decimated. Yeah, to that I say amen. But she means it saying, you better get on board in opposing this because this is what sustains hookup culture in America. And here's what you need to understand about abortion. You need to understand the spiritual darkness involved here, that abortion is the blood sacrament of the pagan worship of sex. You engage in, in free fornication. You will pay this blood sacrifice. That's Satan's goal. Abortion is the blood price you pay so that you continue in the worship of the flesh. And the abortion industry was pioneered by those who wanted to tear down any and every sexual boundary that marriage provides and who wanted to push the limit on sexual exploration. For them, this was their religion. And that's why this week you see so much anger against the leak because striking down Roe v. Wade is a direct threat against the idol that our culture holds so tightly. It's a direct threat against this sacrament. And people get angry when their false gods and idols are threatened. You remember Gideon in the Old Testament, his, the, the town village had all these idols up on the hill, and one night, you remember what Gideon did? He went up on that hill and tore down those idols, but he did it, he did it at night because he, he was afraid of what the town would do. And do you remember what happened the next morning? They were mad. Who took down our idols? Everybody got mad at Gideon. This is the same thing that's going on. You set a moral boundary with abortion, you are setting a limit on the idolatrous worship of self-pleasure. This is what God says for the believer, the exact opposite. 1 Corinthians 10.8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. The apostles at the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, they said to all the believers everywhere in the known world, they said, abstain from sexual immorality. Positively, Paul says to believers in Romans 12, 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We don't practice sexual immorality as believers because our bodies are dedicated to the Lord. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit dwells inside each and every one of us who is a believer. We worship the one and true God, and so we worship God with our bodies. But you need to understand that what is spiritually going on with abortion, at its heart, it is Satan's religion. 
it is Satan's sacrament. There are spiritual forces of evil at work here that we would be stunned to see if they were revealed. This is a very deep and dark spiritual plague that has been over our country for so long. God hates idolatry. So, the five reasons. God is the author of human life. God created mankind with honor. God providentially creates life in the womb. God hates injustice and the poor treatment of the, or the, the, the persecution of the poor. And fifth, God hates idolatry. And so it's clear, right? We know what God thinks about abortion because he's made it perfectly reasoned and explainable and definable in his word. But I don't want to stop there this morning because the Bible also gives good news. It's not just law, it's also gospel. So let me just give you a couple pieces of good news. One, first piece of good news. I believe that every single one of those 60 million babies that has been aborted is right now safe in the arms of God. I think every single one of those children is safe in the arms of God. And it's not an airtight argument, but I think that we can assert this with reasonable certainty. And I'll just give you several reasons. David, when his child died after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he says in 2 Samuel 12, 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So David had an expectation that he would be reunited with his lost child in heaven. Second argument. The Bible says that there will be a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in heaven worshiping Christ on the last day. That's Revelation 7, 9. Now, my question to you is, how is that possible if some tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations no longer exist? There's some tribes and tongues and nations that are no longer on the face of the earth. So how can they be worshiping in heaven if they've never heard the gospel? I think the only explanation is, is that the children who were lost in the womb or died before they could understand what it meant to sin against God were under a special dispensation of God's grace and carried into the arms of God. And by the way, I think that's true of all unborn children who are miscarried as well. And then third, I think that God has demonstrated a special love for children. And you see this, of course, with the Lord Jesus Christ saying, let the children come to me for such belong the kingdom of God, Mark 10, 13, and also in the other synoptic gospels. God loves children. He looks after the orphan, the widow, the least of these, and the, least, and, and the greatest of the least of these are those that are in the womb. 
And so I believe that through the grace that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross, God has a special saving grace for little children whose lives have been lost in abortion. And I, I think that's just amazing news and a glorious hope as we look at this tragedy in our country. Second piece of good news, and this is the best news of all, is that abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Paying for an abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Moses, I think the greatest man of God in the Old Testament, the greatest, I think, he was a murderer. So was the greatest king in the Old Testament, David. Remember, he had Uriah murdered. So was, I think, the greatest apostle by proxy. Do you remember Paul was holding the garments as Stephen was stoned? The Bible is filled with murderers and life takers who have been saved by the grace of God. There's one type of person that Jesus came to save, and that's the filthy, wretched sinner, which we all are. We are all sinners that are saved by grace. No one attains heaven by the pulling up of their bootstraps. Your righteous deeds before God are filthy rags. The only way to get to heaven is for God to come down to us, take on our humanity, and climb up on a cross, bearing our sin on our behalf. And the promise is is that those who look to Christ are cleansed by His blood and find forgiveness of sins. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Praise be to God. If you are in Christ, you are no longer under the law of sin and death. Your sin has been paid for. There is no condemnation for you. All wiped away. Christ didn't come to die for good people. He came to die for the bad people, the wretches like us. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you need to know, friend, the good news of the gospel, that the gospel is the promise of forgiveness. And it's and it's promised to all of us. God knows, God knows what you've done. But God has also offered atonement in a way for you to be right with God and to be washed as white as snow. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. If there was just the law, we, we would all go run and hide because we've all broken it. But the law is complemented with the gospel, and the gospel promises peace and salvation for all who believe. Glorious news. One more piece of glorious news. Even if Roe v. Wade is struck down, which it will be, 
the sins of man will continue on. Idolatry will continue on. Wars will continue on. Sin and evil will continue on. Satan will continue on. Darkness will continue on. The only thing that will bring all of this to an end is the Lord Jesus Christ coming back on a white horse. And he will establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. And so, friends, my ultimate hope isn't in the Supreme Court, as good as as this is. My ultimate hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will return. He promised. And that is the greatest news of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which guides us, which is a light into our path in these times that is so clear and makes it certain of what we are to believe and to what we understand about the ethical issue of life in the womb and abortion. We thank you, Lord, that you have done this work in our nation. We, we praise you, Lord, for this work of common grace, and we thank you, Lord, for the, the people who have labored so long and so hard and for so many years that you've used to bring our nation to this point who have labored in the public square. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to uplift their work and to empower their work. We also praise you, Lord, for this hope of the gospel. And it's this hope that we long to see proclaimed and believed even by those who now are spitting in your face, walking in a manner that is opposed to you. We pray, Lord, for people to be converted to Christ. We're not bringing up the fact that God hates abortion to condemn people, but so that people would know where you stand and so that they would see the law of God and repent and find grace, mercy, and forgiveness at the cross. We thank you for the cross, and we thank you for the certainty of our future, that you are coming back and you are ending death, sickness, destruction, evil, Satan forever. In that we rejoice in that we rejoice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.